from Melbourne and Minneapolis. This is for Christ's sake. Everything forbidden is sweet, Arab proverb. One, Barnaby. The great pyramid of Cheops filled the horizon. It was titanic, a giant mass of yellow-brown stone stretching wide and high, staggering the imagination. Harold Barnaby stood near the base, the vast shadow of the pyramid, talking to a guide. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Hunter, and I'm joined as I am every twice every week by uh, my good bro. Um, what's your name again? Hugh. Uh, thank you, thank you. I had forgotten. I enjoyed the uh, uncertainty with which you pronounced Cheops, <laughs> I must say. Uh, do you know how to pronounce it correctly? Does anyone know how to pronounce it correctly? My understanding is Cheops. Um, I think that's how it was pronounced when it was taught to me in high school, but I remember. Um, much merriment among my friends when we pronounced it chops. <laughs> that is funny. So the Great Pyramid of Chops is, is a nice culinary image, I think, to, mm. to begin this uh, podcast, which, which you know, has a, has a culinary aspect to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're on a new book. We're on a new Crichton book, a new Crichton Lang book, as it were. That's true. Um... What's, this, what's this one called? Uh, it is called Easy Go. Mm, another thrillingly generic title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I've also heard it been referred to, I think even on Wikipedia, as uh, The Last Tomb. The Last Tomb, okay. Yeah, when it was released in 1974, it was called The Last Tomb. Right, well, let's go. So its original title was Easy Go. Yeah, so we're going to call it Easy Go because that was what it was also uh, republished under recently, which is the version that we're reading. Now, I made a joke about the title, but it appears to me after having learnt the titles of his first three books uh, in this John Lang phase that Michael Crichton is being quite calculated in the way he titles the books. Like, it seems Hmm. they follow a formula and it seems intentionally generic to me. Seems like he's not going for a memorable title. He's going for like a vague title that you can't really surmise anything about the contents based on the title alone, right? Whereas like The Last Tomb would be a giveaway as to what this book is about. But what the mm. fuck does Easy Go mean? What the fuck does Odds On mean? Or Scratch What? Scratch One. Yeah, they don't fit the... Scratch One I think is especially baffling given the, uh, given the uh, contents of that book. They do mention it in dialogue in Scratch One, but like it's even stranger in a way. <laughs> but Scratch One sort of is like this. It doesn't. It doesn't imply the like. Uh, you know, you, you think it'd be sort of like a hard edged thriller based on that Scratch One, right? Yeah. But does not. Uh, it belies the uh, goofy 
or quasi-goofy, theoretically goofy, let's say, uh, tone of Scratch 1. At least Odds On relates to, like, the central plan, right? Mm. The fact that it has odds in it, at least. Yeah. And that it's a probability thing. Uh, and Easy Goes used to refer to nothing, so... Yep. So we're following a similar attack to the last book. Okay, right. So Easy Go. Yes. So I think... Um, well, I guess before we get into the book itself, we should talk a little bit about our uh, our good friends, our fellow um, adventurers into the Murray of Crichton and Crichton, Crichton, Crichton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and these are our signature drinks, which I'm holding in my one hand, and our signature snacks, which I've just picked up in the other. Yeah, so we, we, we do like to pair. We we do like to pair. Yes, it is. Sprinkling the bag. I was I was actually going to say this and I forgot to, and that reminded me. But uh, it would be preferable if uh, if you were going to consume something that comes in a bag that you mm-hmm. decant it into a less noisy object <laughs> for the purposes of the uh, audio quality of this podcast. But whatever. No. Um, yes, we, we, we do like to pair a snack and a drink mm. um, to whatever book we're reading on this podcast um, based, on, based on some associations that have occurred to us from reading the opening two chapters, right? Mm. Yes, yes. Something that will capture the spirit of this novel. Yeah. And, 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 and befit. Befit. And fit. <laughs> Cut. Yes? You going to say something? I was just going to ask you what are... What I brought with your... me? Yeah. What I have packed for this excursion to Egypt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well... Um, We'll get to it, but uh, a, a couple of points, Crichton describes the, the colour of the landscape in Egypt, because it is mm. set in Egypt, not to give anything away, but like the opening excerpt gave away the fact that we're um, concerned with a pyramid in Cheops, so we're in Egypt. Oh, spoilers. And uh, Egypt is a hot place, is it not? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. So can I guess what you, you, you're drinking right now? You may. Okay, I think you put about a tablespoon of hot sauce into a, like, um, you know, typical drinking glass. And you Mm -hmm. filled it up to about two fingers worth of, let's say, um, with, um, what's a good liquor? Like a a brandy? And then you've topped, you've you've touched a little uh, Chardonnay on that. Is that that right? So hot sauce, then brandy, then Chardonnay. Yeah, and then you add some ice to it. That's your prediction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, well, I did go for a hot beverage, but temperature hot. Yeah, lame. So I have with me a cup of tea, and not just any cup of tea. What? As I said, as I said, Crichton does describe the landscape, particularly as it's, uh, you know, as the sun is setting. Hmm. We will. We will return to the sun in a little bit. Yeah, so the, the sun sets, it casts this orange glow across Cairo. So I have an, a cup of orange pico tea. Mm. Now, is this the tea that I drink all the time, regardless of whether we're recording a podcast about Michael Crichton? Yes, it is. Yes. And uh, this will be the first non-alcoholic drink that we've done on the show. 
It will, and that, that was that was a conscious effort on my part because uh, now there's a drinking game associated with our sister podcast, Project A Plus. I didn't want to get completely hammered in the middle of the day. Oh, I totally forgot about that. Oh my god. <laughs> Have you written your trivia questions? <laughs> no. Jesus Christ, man. I can, I can write some real quick. Though. I almost forgot, but I, I remembered as I was Well, you, you had to edit it, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I completely forgot about that. Jesus, man. <laughs> Better get on that. Yeah, I could do a whole recording this. Um, All right. And so so um, the reason I, I was so lazy in my beverage choice, despite my uh, ample justifications just now, is that uh, I did set out on an excursion this morning to uh, locate some hibiscus tea, mm-hmm. which is like the national drink of Egypt, or at least a popular drink in current-day Egypt. Uh, and it's quite a tart, colourful tea, a, a bright red colour, um, but I found it very difficult to actually find. Um, there was a specialty tea place that had, like, hibiscus as part of a blend, but that... That wasn't good enough for me. So I thought, well, I've got orange pico, the sun's orange, it's Egypt, it's hot, good enough. Lame. Lame. Uh, let's do your beverage now, and then we'll both do our snacks. Well, as you say, I was I was quite captivated by Crichton's description of the sun, the orange, you know, eating down, Egypt, very sunny place, I can imagine. So you've got a cup of orange pico tea? <laughs> yep, yep. No, no, it's way too late for that here. I do have orange pico tea. But I have a vodka sunrise, mm. which is a mixed drink made was well, typically made with tequila, but I don't want to buy a bottle of tequila because I have a bunch of vodka. <laughs> so it is a, like I said, a uh, mixture of vodka, orange juice, grenadine syrup, and topped with a maraschino cherry. That's also that's also quite a pragmatic choice, given yeah. that you'd been it's talking true. about this drink anyway, independent of this podcast. <laughs> I don't know Based on the fact about. that uh, you had leftover grenadine from the end of Scratch One. I dispute these uh, <laughs> allegations of laziness. I mean, who am I to judge? <laughs> exactly, exactly. We said bother to make something. I told you I went on an excursion. I wasted my time, if not my money. Hmm. Well, I had to buy maraschino cherries, so. There you go. Okay, so in the uh, opening paragraph that you read out, uh, in fact, within the first three words, Michael Crichton, as John Lang, mentions a pyramid, right? The Great Pyramid of Cheops. Mm-hmm. So I decided to create my own food pyramid. Mm. Not the not the food pyramid of, like, dietary requirements and, and where everything falls, but the food pyramid that looks like a pyramid which is a pyramid created by triangular pieces of toast. Uh, triangular pieces of buttered toast. Uh, so it does have so like dumb. a yellow-orange hue similar to Egypt. And uh, right now I am assembling it so that it resembles a pyramid. So I've taken three of the triangular slices, created my own little pyramid on the plate, and I will be uh, consuming that uh, every single week with my tea. Wow. What have you got, sir? Well, I decided to stay with the sun theme and uh, went with a particular brand of chip. I'm not sure if they exist in uh, jolly old Australia, but it's something called a sun chip. Have you heard of this? Is it a Dorito? No, it's called a sun chip. That's okay. The, that's, the, that's the type of chip it is. So it's not like a corn chip? No. I believe... Okay. Actually, it might be a corn chip. I don't know what they're made out of, to be honest. Is it triangular? 
No. Huh. I was going to go for Doritos, actually, but I didn't. It appears to be a mixture of whole corn, brown rice, and whole wheat flour. Hmm, so. okay. And, Why have you selected uh, this particular snack? Well, they're called Sun Chips. <laughs> and I think that uh, it, I was originally going to go with Cheetos, but I think the drinking of... Well, I, I have a very particular memory of once with one of my friends when I was a, a child, eating a bunch of Cheetos, drinking a bunch of orange juice, and also eating a bunch of saltwater taffy and then throwing up uh, copiously with my friend. So I did not think eating Cheetos alongside this very orange juice heavy beverage would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. So instead, I uh, want to say that was a little more mild and sun chips fit the bill. They also are called sun chips because <laughs> of the sun. Uh, and I think that's a, a compelling enough uh, case I made. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty sloppy effort, effort from both of us uh, this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, who can blame us given, uh, you know, uh, the paucity of the, the previous book, you know. Hmm. 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 Good toast. Good chips. Set off the fire alarm again. Nice. Make you dust. Or rather smoke detector, not quite the fire alarm. Alright, let's let's fucking get into this shit. So uh you let's know, I it. think that I think that uh, both of us, and this is probably uh, very audible in the podcast that we recorded, we're definitely a little sick of the old um, uh, scratch one. By the time we reach the conclusion, we both were ready for it to be over. Yep, and done. And I think that uh, you know, uh, we know that Crichton is able to write a decent enough, um, you know, sort of spy adventure thriller. Uh, which is she proved with odds on, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think this book has a, has a lot to live up to in that way. Uh, yes. And so I guess, Hugh, uh, what I'll ask you to get us started is, do you think that this book is a successful return to the odds on uh, vibe, or are we still going to be miserable from week to week reading this book? Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm pretty excited. Uh, based on these initial couple of tasters uh, that we've had. Mm. So it definitely mm. definitely seems to have more of an odds-on flavor than a scratch one flavor. Uh, so for one thing, we're jumping right in with uh, at least some of our protagonists pretty early on. And uh, we're in a, a far-flung exotic location. And, uh, you know, there's going to be some sort of um, <laughs> shady heist there, there appears to be zero right? jokes, which is obviously a plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with this. I think that uh, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, was compelling about Odds On is it took these very like, sort of, well, all the characters were pretty uh, archetypical, right? Which does seem to be the case here too. But you know, the, their traits were distilled very easily, unlike Roger Carr's, you know. Yep. And the fact that there were so one of the was sort of diluted by the fact that there are so many of them all working together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that seems to be the case here, but I guess we should reserve our our judgment on that until we know a little bit more about the plot in general. Because um, we haven't really... I mean, we, we haven't talked about it at all. These chapters haven't really uh, explained the central 
motor of the novel so far. They've maybe given us a few tantalizing hints about what it'll be about, but I think that the overarching narrative structure is yet to be revealed, if you agree with me. Or not. I think um, by the end of the second chapter, mm. it's pretty close to being revealed. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. But we, I think we do, we do lay quite a bit of groundwork in the first chapter, um, assuming that this book is going to go in the direction that uh, I think it will go. Mm. Uh, it's a more substantive opening chapter than certainly Scratch One provided. Mm. Yes, I, I definitely agree with this. Uh, so should we discuss what this uh, chapter is about exactly? Let's do it. Easy come, easy go. Hieroglyphics in a row. Red diagonally shown. The last tomb of the last pharaoh. Who is who is this Barnaby? What is he doing in Egypt? Uh, well, as, as we just heard, initially he's just scaling a pyramid, right? Like a tourist. And he's got a guide uh, helping out there, right? Mm-hmm. Then we discover that uh, he's not any old tourist. Well, before he's... we that, we discover a little bit of uh, you know casual racism. Go for it. <laughs> just the uh, uh, guide that is is helping out just speaks of this very stereotypical you know kind of uh, I'm a white guy ready to Egyptian character like broken English you know yeah so it's a little little put off by that but not enough to sink in and obviously this is written in the. Uh, 1960s, which were, uh, you know, a hellhole of, of racism. So it's hard to pin too much on Crichton himself, I think. Yeah. Then we learn exactly who Barnaby is. And as I said, he's not just any old tourist. He is the Associate Professor of Archaeology at the University of Chicago. Chicago. And uh, specifically, he's an Egyptologist. What a specialty... Does he specialize in? His specialty is hieroglyphics. He's become so good at hieroglyphics, in fact, so well-versed, so fluent, that uh, he believes that most of the translations, most of the uh, published translations, at least, of the hieroglyphs are inaccurate. So he's come to the source to retranslate them for himself. Hmm. Very interesting. Isn't it? Very. Uh, so, yeah. So we, we jump back in time a little bit and uh, we go back to his initial studies because uh, this, this predates his um, scaling of the pyramid. So he arrives in Cairo. He's set up at uh, the Egyptian Museum. He has a little room uh, and a guard watching him and... Uh, he gets access to the documents, the hieroglyphs, and he starts making notes, right? Now, um, he finds this particular one document that uh, stands out because the translation is a little bit off. Mm-hmm. He thinks that the, the translator has kind of forced the hieroglyphs to conform to uh, what he thinks it's about. Mm. And yes. made and taken some liberties with uh, piecing that together. Um, now, it is revealed. I didn't know this, but Crichton is the uh, the oracle here. That uh, hieroglyphs can be read in three directions potentially. 
Mm, it's kind of like uh, Japanese, except for with one more, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So left to right, right to left, and um, vertically as well. I'm not sure if it's top to bottom or bottom to top or both. Mm. But but three axes at least. Two axes. Yes. <laughs> Two axes. We're about Two to axes. reveal a third one. Yes, we are. I just didn't understand how it uh, would um, result in... Why would it be different than horizontal? Why would it be different than reading it horizontally is, I guess, my, my question. Why would it order the characters in a different way? It would order the characters in a different way. Uh, yeah, you got to explain it to me. Uh, you son no, of a it bitch! It would be like, well... Hieroglyphs, I can't even remember. They're not, they were initially thought to be symbolic, and then it was discovered mm. that that wasn't actually the case. Mm. So, if you did have a couple of symbols that were one thing together and a different thing piece combined with another symbol, then you could theoretically have a coded message that works in this particular way. I'm not sure how feasible it would be, but. No, I, I don't think so. Anyway, anyway. I so, want to dub swap. <sighs> So Barnaby is trying a few different approaches here. He's trying to read from the opposite direction. He's trying horizontally. None of it seems to make the the text any clearer um, than the initial translation. But something about it just seems off to him. It doesn't seem right. And because of his experience, he 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 has an intuition for these these things, right? Right, right. And then suddenly he goes, "Oh, I know it's diagonal." So he reads it diagonally, and was like, "Ah, there's a hidden treasure somewhere." <laughs> Yeah, basically the uh, the uh, more specifics of this is that the visor of one of the uh, you know rulers of, of ancient Egypt uh, has um, hidden a message in his his tombstone, which in such a way that makes it seem like initially that if someone were to read it incorrectly, that it'd just be bureaucratic uh, flim flam, you know, like oh the. Queen bought X number of slaves or whatever, but uh, this this clever uh, man has instead uh, hidden the location of his ruler's tomb in this message. That is what mm-hmm. the information that has been decoded by our good friend Mr. Barnaby here. That's about the long and short of it, right? <laughs> yeah. the The one other thing I wanted to point out. Um, so this dude who wrote the message for his tomb, uh, worked for the pharaoh. And in, mm. in the in the hierarchy of Egyptian society, he's like the second in charge. And in order to maintain the secrecy of the location where he is going to enshrine and bury the pharaoh, mm. uh, he essentially murders... His son-in-law and fifty other slaves. Oh uh, yes, and yeah, a bunch of slaves. I think he just they just get like just get sealed in to the tomb, right? That's what mm. happens. He doesn't like physically. Uh, I actually don't think that's true. I mean, it's not clear from the text, but um, Barnaby surmises that he personally murdered them. Mm. But it doesn't actually say in the text that he murdered them. He just he just says that fifty slaves lie near the dwelling place, and my son-in-law watches over them. So, you know, I was just surmising that they'd been sealed in mm. so that no one could spill the secret. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and then, you know, this is exciting to Barnaby. He's like, wow, if I, 
If I have discovered a lost tomb that no one had ever heard of before, I'll be famous. I will get tenure at the university. I think he has a little bit of uh, delusions here. If I have to be clear, because, um, you know, he's like, oh, it's too bad name will be as, as well known as Tutankhamun's Commons is, right? And it's like... As common as King Tut's, in fact. Yeah, yeah. And then, but but the comparison would not be to King Tut, it'd be to whoever discovered King Tut, who yeah. I have no idea who that is. Yeah, whose name has been lost <laughs> to time. So, <laughs> you need to uh, perhaps uh, <laughs> slow down your uh, aspirations there, Barnaby, a little bit. I, we should also mention we learned a, we learned a little bit more about uh, Barnaby, too. Uh, so he is, what was he, 41? 41, yeah. And, uh, and he's, he's he had is, no time for women. Yeah. He's been rapidly approaching uh, middle age. Yeah. Egypt is his mistress. Yeah, yeah. Just like how uh, Feld was uh, Berger's mistress. That's right. But then who, uh, what is, because th- that that quote is is basically that, you know, theater was was Bergman's wife, right? So then, what what do you think, uh, Barnaby? What, what, what do you think Barnaby's wife is? <laughs> Masturbating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I masturbate a lot. Um, what are we talking about? Oh yeah. What, what other qualities can we say about him? His hairline's receding, his eyes are growing weaker, his, his youth is deserting him rapidly. So I think that sort of informs his decision to take a step in the dark and try to, uh, you know, not run away from this discovery and, and try to claim it all to himself. By which I mean, he, he briefly is like, oh man, you know, I, I'll become a, a, a tenured professor. I'll make tons of money. And he's like, no, I'll make more money than that. I don't really, it, it didn't really uh, follow what he was going to do, but you know. We don't yet know exactly what he's planning. Yeah. But like he sours on the idea of merely becoming a tenured professor um, because he, he reasons that he'll only receive what, like $16,000 a year at best. Mm. That's nothing. Surely discovering this ancient treasure should be much more lucrative than that. Um, we do get one other character detail I want to talk about, which follows on from the observation that Egypt is his mistress. Because it's not just that he's eschewing romantic contact, it's also that he's a little bit of an insult. Because <laughs> <laughs> on the airplane coming over, there had been a girl that he noticed, but he couldn't approach her. They'd exchanged gans- exchange glances. He had looked away. Yeah, he was Gansett, timid, afraid. Gansett, Gansett in the moonlight. Yeah, a bit of a Ganson here. Although Ganson had more than he did, so. Ganson at least had his drive, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, yeah. So, so he gets this other idea that we don't yet know about. And he's like, no, that's silly. No, there's no way I could do it. No, it's impossible. Yet there must be a way. That's how the chapter ends. Yeah. He also realizes that it's something that whatever this plan is, he can't do it alone. He needs contacts, finances, organization. Well, where where on earth is he going to find? He he doesn't know anyone. He's just a dumb old Egyptologist who spent all his life, you know, fucking fucking Egypt and nothing else. How how is he supposed to to meet uh, people? How is he supposed to create a team? How is he supposed to get people together? Directly he's a virgin. He's a 41-year-old virgin. <laughs> mm. Good one. Anyway, this is a pretty exciting setup, don't you agree? 
Ah, uh, yes, yes. Definitely more engaging than the setup for uh, Scratch was. Yeah. If I had to put it on the continuum of odds on, I think it's less exciting than the beginning of odds on, but... Odds on began with, like, dynamite in a car. That was pretty exciting. Yeah. And then there's a computer that was telling people what to do. And the computer, do. yeah. You know, th actually, the, the one disappointment I have with mm. this book so far, and sort of based on the first couple of chapters, is that there doesn't seem to be any place for technology at this particular stage. Mm. I mean, I hope there is. I hope his plan is reliant on some <laughs> new and emerging technology. But, uh, you know, I have my doubts. I feel like it's just going to be more of a straightforward, crime-inflected uh, adventure heist thing. I do think uh, that we have, do have to remember that far-flung lo uh, far locales are also one of Crichton's signatures. Indeed, so that yes. does, That does fulfill some quotient of his personality, his authorial stamp. It does. And it also includes, like, a degree of research and stuff like that yeah. as well. Yeah, it does, it does include several uh, Newsweek or Time magazine articles that he had read about Egypt <laughs> before writing the book and just copying information from. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that, I think that should be it for this episode. I don't see anything else you want to have. No, I don't. All right. Two, two.